Welcome to episode four of Podcana, a podcast that delves into all the news, the strategies around Lorcana TCG. I'm Flake, joined as always by Brendan Patrick, and we bring you the headlines and top discussion points of this game. Yep, so episode four, we're going to be joined by Sasha Markovic, professional card player, about his ongoing discoveries in reverse engineering of Lorcana. It's not one you're going to want to miss, so let's get into it. All right, Flake, hit me with that Elsa icebreaker of All right. Yeah, Elsa icebreaker is uh, this time brought to you by Hobbies and Happiness at Hobbies and Happy on Twitter. Wonderful podcast. I've uh, spoken to them before. Great, great people love all kinds of card games. They say, hey, we want to know what is your favorite Disney villain? We've heard of Disney movies, Disney soundtracks, etc. But Disney villains are very special. Brendan, who's your number one (laughs) Disney villain? It's tough, um, but I do think it's Hades. I think it's Hades. What about you? So Hades was kind of on my radar for sure. I love Hercules, and I think I've said that every single episode that we've talked about. He's certainly the most entertaining. Mm -hmm. James Woods does an amazing job as Hades. But I think the best villain in all of Disney is Scar. Scar (sighs) is the most- heart, though. He's brutal. He is brutal, and that's what makes him a great villain because he's calculated. He's 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 very elegant. He's very you know Shakespearean in that sense. And uh, I think it's Jeremy Irons that uh, that does Scar does a phenomenal job. Scar and Mufasa together was such a battle. It was such a, a wonderful dichotomy, like this head to head. And I think ultimately you see the that that particular villain. And it's not just the the portrayal of the villain that was stellar. It was just what that villain looked to do, how that villain succeeded in doing it in a very brutal way. And then the consequences of that foresight of, of you know, of not having the foresight of seeing what that would ha- what would happen at the end of that. Yeah. I just don't know if I'll be able, be able to get over my childhood trauma of uh, Mufasa dying. So Scar is just it's too dark well, for me. It is kind of dark, but that's why I think it's the best villain because I think it was the most significant. It's like the most actual, you know, Hades is a cool villain, but he's funny. You know, it seems like a lot of the villains in a lot of these Disney movies are just kind of goofballs mm-hmm. that, you know, this was the one villain that you were actually scared of. Like I was, I was kind of scared of Scar. Yeah, for sure. All right, Flake. Well, take us into the headlines. I know we got some pricing as well as some, uh, you know, some new cards that came along here. Yeah, pricing, I think, is the most important one that I want to dig into first here because Disney Lorcana's UK, the United Kingdom pricing, has uh, essentially been leaked. Now, this is from uh, lorcanaplayer.com, did some sleuthing and found that some of the distributors and some of the stores, the shops themselves got the MSRP, the, the basically the suggested retail price of what the product is going to be costing people and i saw this and i was a little bit shocked to a degree and and i'm going to dig through at least a few of them a booster box i think 24 packs of uh of lorcana is going to be 119.99 pounds not dollars us not dollars canadian pounds which essentially if you do the conversion rate you're looking at about 142 dollars usd for one box a booster pack 599 pounds or about i guess i would imagine that's about seven seven dollars usd which i mean when any new set comes out it's usually hovers between the four and five dollar range for a new pack unless it's like a exceptionally premium product or a super hot commodity uh and i don't know if they're msrping this in the same thought process as like a retailer would hike a price of something that's in demand like do they just think that this is going to be so damn in demand which i i think it will be that they're they are setting the price high Mm. honestly i'm happy to pay these prices the prices i'm not happy to pay are the secondary prices after it gets scalped because that's when it gets prohibitively expensive this i can handle it's more expensive uh than some other card games but i still think that it's accessible if you you have a budget has the appetite for something like a flesh and blood or magic the gathering uh my biggest concern my biggest concern would be uh secondary market people buying the product up scalping it i mean this is very 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 common for hyped alpha and beta sets of any game and uh yeah that's my biggest concern to be honest well scalping is always like it's just a vile way to do things i get like sick pleasure watching 
videos on Reddit of scalpers that get caught with a bunch of product that don't know what to do with it. So um, I love how that's like your nightly thing. <laughs> it is. It's like, honestly, like that's my favorite thing to do. It's like midnight. I'm in bed. I'm like, let's go watch some scalpers. Just look at, you know, 200 boxes of shoes that they scalped and can't get rid of. Like, good for you. Um, I, I agree with you in the sense that like, yeah, I'm willing to pay it, obviously, but what I worry about is that there are going to be like we had like we mentioned in the previous episode about organized play where you have to have an appeal to casuals from a, mm. from the com- competition standpoint of the game, actual playing, sitting down, playing the game. If the price to getting into this game is that high, then that could be a major turnoff for the casual player or the the kid who doesn't have disposable income, who relies on their parents to get this stuff. It's a huge turnoff for this dude. When I was growing up, it was a tough sell to get my parents to buy me a pack of Star Wars cards for 250 Like, that was a tough sell. Like, yeah. that was not easy. And, you know, furthermore, I think that what they're trying to do maybe is, like, if you price the booster boxes and at that price, the gift sets become more appealing for the casual player. So maybe that's what they're trying to balance and say, hey, you can buy the the gift box and the pre-cons for X price for the casual player and the competitors are going to pay whatever the hell the competitors have to pay to be competitive. Yeah. I think that, um, I think they just know the market will take it um, at this point. Honestly, like, I don't think these prices are that crazy considering how much just more expensive most things are nowadays. (laughs) If you look at like the past five years. So, and I also don't think that their marketing towards kids i think that the disney ip like it does have a sort of tertiary effect of like oh i could if i'm an adult and i buy this game i can potentially play it with my kid and if they like it you know more the merrier win-win but i think in no way like is this a product where it's like yeah these kids are gonna go ask their parents for hundreds or probably even sometimes thousands of dollars to like buy a standard deck because like if you look at something like flesh and blood where there's a somewhat similar pricing metal uh uh pricing to this and it's less by the way flesh and blood is a non-rotating format and the game is like two plus years old but it's still like often over 500 dollars to get a deck like that just doesn't market to any true truly like young person um but yeah i mean that's sort of my take i hear you um beyond that we did get some new cards brendan uh we're gonna dig into some of them and the impact of uh, one particular one but before we get to that that bombshell of a card scar wardrobe aladdin these have all been released out there saying hey take a look at this cool stuff uh disney's lurkana twitter page basically dropped some some nice ones for us but the most important one i think that we can all agree is white rabbit's pocket watch because this had some significant impact on how we viewed the rules and how we anticipated certain things would actually uh work out yeah i feel like most people in the community at this point thought that things would come in with haste because if you look at stitch in particular um stitch has an ability that if you tap something when uh stitch is on the board you get a benefit and if it's like okay well if that thing has summoning sickness or it doesn't have haste it's no downside it's a complete free roll unless being tapped affects something in like a later combat phase so most people had assumed that things came in with haste but rabbit's pocket watch is a three cost item in amethyst um, and has the ability i'm late tap one resource choose a character chosen character gains rush this turn and rush means they can challenge the turn they're played so things definitely when when things are played onto the board they cannot immediately challenge unless they're modified with something like white rabbits pocket watch so it's pretty it's quite the bombshell to be honest um and changes up quite a bit in the game not necessarily a good or bad thing but we do need to sort of recalibrate um our previous understanding all right, so we're, we're recording this on March 7th, uh, 2023. So by the time that this gets printed, et cetera, who knows? It might, new things might come out. But uh, at the end of the day, these are some of the more uh, important headlines. I know that a lot of people are waiting for Gen Con that's going to be coming around you know, in a few months, et cetera, as we approach the summer months. Again, we are a couple weeks from spring. So Disney Larkana, I know you're listening to this, I, I say to myself. You have told us that spring is going to be quite the revelation of a season and we are waiting with bated breath because there's nothing that Brendan and I want to do more than talk about this game but you gotta give us something you you gotta give us something yeah just spoil it already (laughs) it's like I know we're all over here just kind of twiddling our thumbs wondering what the hell's going on ultimately though it makes for good discussion Mm -hmm. I guess but um 
that said, that's that. Those are the major headlines that I that I can dig out that I think is is relevant. Again, big thanks to uh, LorcanaPlayer.com for kind of uh, talking about the and releasing the price points, the new cards from Disney Lorcana, and uh, yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. So our main topic for this episode, episode number four, is going to be uh, a guest episode. We've got Sasha Markovic here, and Sasha has been doing some. Awesome work, actually. I think if you've been following Sasha on Twitter, which I recommend everyone does, you've been doing a really good job of essentially reverse engineering what you believe Lorcana is going to look like. And it has been quite the journey. I've been following along with it. And uh, Sasha, it's uh, it's nice to have you on the show. How are you, man? Good. Thank you, Flake. Um, yeah, it's been really fun with the ups and downs of just, you know, tidbits of information. But yeah, cheers for following along and inviting me on. Yeah. It's been an interesting journey because uh, I know for me personally, I think I thought I had some mechanics like uh, one one specifically we'll talk about later completely nailed down and uh, a recent spoiler flipped it on its head and I was actually wrong. So it was the one I was I was like 99% certain. So it's uh, it's been a rocky road. Sasha, just for the audience, what's the what's what's the lore behind Sasha Markovic? Who are you and what is uh, what's your history with card games? I'm not sure there's too much lore about me, but the short of it is that uh, I've been playing card games for about 20 years since I was like a young young lad. Um, yeah, played at pretty much every level, casual, competitive, professional. Um, yeah, then I got involved in actually working for some companies, designing, developing, you know, just pretty much everything except creating art for the actual games. And um, yeah, that's going to be a far milestone down the road, mm-hmm. if ever at all. But yeah, just love card games and playing them my whole life and just happy to be part of the community. Yeah, it's a really good foundation. I mean, if you're going to be reverse engineering things, uh, uh, I guess forward engineering them is a good start, <laughs> I suppose, if you're designing <laughs> card games and all that kind of stuff. So uh, is there anything in particular that really attracted you to Lorcana? Uh, I know that you have a, a like you mentioned, a, a very big history with other card games. I know you from Flesh and Blood, you're very successful in that game as well. But what was it about Lorcana specifically that attracted your attention and and not just your passing interest, but also your, you know, just getting the gears going in your mind to actually start digging into this game so deeply? It's got a massive foundation of effort behind it, both from a design perspective with like Ryan Miller at the wheel and also just the IP of Disney at itself. So it's just like the perfect storm is like coming together and this doesn't happen every day, every year, every decade even. So it's just really cool to be at the forefront of it while it's launching. How important do you think uh, the Disney IP is? Because we've seen a few card games launched now, I guess, in recent succession. I know Marvel Snap getting Mobile Game of the Year uh, quite recently using Marvel's IP. How important do you think it is for Ravensburger to release this card game under the Disney IP? And how much do you think that that specifically might contribute to the game's success on launch? Uh, I think it's unprecedented like factor really in any entertainment vehicle, the IP, the familiarity, it just like shortcuts so many like things that you have to work towards and build from the ground up. And if everyone's already has that, it's just, it's killer. Like it's the best way to start. Yeah. We had a, a Flake and I were having a funny discussion the past episode because uh I think that there's like this common conception that uh, Lorcana is advertised for a younger audience and this, this IP supports that. But as we were talking, we we're looking at some of the heroes that were represented or characters that were represented on the cards. We're like, huh, a lot of these cards are from VHS tapes. You know, they're from old <laughs> 90s and 2000s movies. Like, I don't think the kids are watching that these days. I think they're watching to see how long someone can put their hand on a card to win a million dollars. Do you think the Disney IP is uh, like lends itself towards a younger audience or is it actually targeted at a more adult audience for nostalgic purposes? Uh, I think it has column A and column B. Um, the adults are going to be the people spending the money. And if it crosses over to like any key interest to their kids, which I think is what they're trying to do, then that's just like gravy on top. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's fair. That's definitely fair. I mean, like if you went up to anybody, uh, I guess, under the age of, I guess, 16 and asked them, what does VCR stand for? It's God knows what, like it's a chat bot or something. They'll think <laughs> I have no idea. Is that, um, is that the new yeah, AI, AI software? tool yet? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something that's eventually going to become like a terrible thing. That's probably what they're thinking. Uh, ultimately, though, Sasha, you are here because you've done excellent work in terms of reverse engineering the cards. Uh, you actually wrote out 
quite the intricate uh, turn process of where you think the rule book is going to end up this, this sort of, I don't want to call it a master plan, but you kind of just gave this snapshot of here's what Disney Lorcana is going to be based on what you've, you've figured out. We'll get to that at the end. I think that there's definitely steps to get to there at the, um, you know, in the process, but let's start off with the first bit here, which are the pips or what are the lore? So Sasha, can you talk to us a little bit about your thought process? What is that? And how did you come to that conclusion? Um, so these mysterious pips were just on every card and you kind of just felt there was some familiarity with them. The real key to figuring out whether pips was like a win condition or not was Olaf. Olaf has been like the key to so many reverse engineering tactics. I've talked to Brendan quite extensively about it as well uh, because Olaf like doesn't have lore at all or a pip or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, so just looking about... Does the IP fit like the classic take your opponent's life down to zero? I think it's a bit, uh, you know, too, not gruesome, but like, you know, combative and just like negative some zero, whatever you want to um, say. And just like after a certain amount of thinking, is it resources? Is it how much damage they deal? And like the number for power is just like, a, you know, something you compare to see who's the winner. Uh, and then just kind of like dawn okay so this is actually what we're doing to win the game and just looking at how certain cards are balanced as well what cards have more pips and less pips and for what reason stuff mm -hmm. like that so what do you think their ultimate function is do you think it's a win condition in the game or is it some sort of uh, resource system uh, i think it's just the primary win condition mm -hmm. yeah so the game is all about collecting law getting to a certain threshold and once you have that threshold you've told the best story or whatever, however they want to spin it and that's going to be how you win when you say collecting lore, it sort of uh, reminds me to Keyforge and Reaping um, in order to sort of complete the keys. Do you think it's a similar system, somewhat like an end of turn, um, you're able to sort of cash in those lore? Or how do you think it works? Are we stacking up tokens on the cards? Are we? Is there some sort of external area in the game where you're tracking your lore as sort of the win condition? How does it work? Yeah, I think the one lesson we have from Keyforge is that putting... A variable amount of tokens on your cards is not a good idea yeah it feels like a board game and you're like manipulating too many things so they're doing damage counters um mm -hmm. basically what we figured out uh, or have been told and just having one single type of counter which is pretty good because you can replace it with a dice in certain settings whatever um fits best um so the law i think it's something that you calculate separately on the side and you, it's similar to reaping i'm saying that you can choose to cash it in for law which, as in send the character on a quest. And if you start your turn with that character unscathed, then you get the quest value, which is the law printed on the card. I think ultimately they were probably looking from the get-go to stray away from things like you mentioned, like gruesome to a degree. Like it has to be Disneyified to to a certain aspect where you're not attacking a character, you're challenging it, you know, in the same sense. You're not dealing damage, you're not killing, you're banishing uh, as mm -hmm. it were, and ultimately, if there was a quote-unquote life total, then that's where certain words come in, like, oh, I killed my opponent, or I, you know, and that, I think, you know, you have to be careful about that. I worry about this to a degree as well, because if ever there was a situation where I had to cast this game, you know that that is the first thing that would pop into my mind. Um, I have, just as a side note, I've played, or I've uh, done broadcasting for a high school League of Legends circuit in the <laughs> States, and they were you were not allowed to say the term kill, even though it was in gigantic word like block lettering <laughs> on the screen. It's like, oh, penta elimination. It's like, okay, I get it. <laughs> I, I I figure. So I, I wonder if that if like you think that they actually just strayed away from the life total and that aspect purely because it was just gruesome. Uh, I think that um, yeah, yeah, I would I would hazard so yeah, de definitely right. But I think also. Um, the concept of reducing your your opponent's life total down to zero is just very it's very default, right? And I think that um, just because Magic decided to do that and was a bit of a first mover, I mean, there was maybe games that came before Magic, I'm not completely sure, but let's say, like, the prime example of that, you know, 20, 30 years later, I, I don't think you're, that your game has to follow that strict rule of, like, it's just two sort of omnipotent beings trying to reduce this sort of life total that exists outside the game down to zero right it is kind of uh it's actually to an extent it's like somewhat unimaginative it could be the best system that's why we see a lot of games use it but i think we've seen other card games get developed and released sort of in recent history that go outside that box and go outside the system sasha, sasha i want to ask you in regards to 
something you mentioned, which was damage counters. I think that counters across, you know, many cards and yeah, let's just, let's just call it many counters being tracked in a single turn is uh, somewhat ubiquitously hated. Um, it's, uh, it's some, it's known as a clunky system and a relatively bad system. What do you think about the implementation of uh, damage counters? And do you think that it potentially leads us to the conclusion that there's going to be limited slots on the board for your, for your, um, for your characters, right? Because if it was, if it was unlimited, if you have 10 characters and you're managing 10 dice just for life, this doesn't count modifiers to attack or anything else, like any other kind of, you know, like a, any other kind of tokens or symbols you need to put on your character. That's, that's way too much. That's way too much. So th- if, when I look at damage counters, it tells me there's going to be a limited board space. Do you agree? Um, I wouldn't actually agree with that, but I think that's the direction they're going. Um, damage counters, if anything, indicate an unlimited board space because if their damage persists, it means things will degrade over time, and that means you can open up the space to having a scaling variety of cards on the table. Compared to if damage didn't persist and you have a lot of cards stay on the table, then that likelihood is just going to like get larger and larger and larger. So I don't think it actually trends to um, cards like having a limited amount of slots. But I think that we'll have a limited amount of slots just because the design has been somewhat simple in execution. So I, I think that's just where they're going to head. Do you think that damage is persistent through the turn cycle or through the entire game? Through the entire game. Okay. I tend to agree with that. I think that's just the way it is. Um, yeah. And that's it, it, it's also s- simplified, and it gives you know if you're looking for a a younger audience to play this game, which uh, you know when there's it gives something to work for if you hate a particular character you could put work into actually eliminating it mm-hmm. and i think that that is just you know you take it from the hearthstone perspective and then what you said earlier you know like how the life total game is like that's just the general framework that's the template that a lot of games start with um you know you improve on it and you you know and you work through it magic's a com- very complex game i don't think that that's what this is gunning for and in magic trying to get rid of a very robust a beefy creature is oftentimes really difficult so i think that if there's the persistent damage that goes out through the game it's a little bit easier to digest when something massive hits the board it's not just game ending it's just maybe game altering Mm -hmm. i think what so like what persistent damage does in a game like this in a game like hearthstone is it gives your your sort of your lower drop cards functionality in the late game if you look at something like magic like a five drop just like well, often purely outclass a, a one drop. You know, maybe not in some older formats, you have very powerful one drops, but in general, especially in something like Limit, if you're looking at like a common five drop versus a common one drop, that one drop seems to like cease like any sort of utility or function after the five drop is developed onto the board, other than something like chump blocking or being used as sacrifice or some sort of pump, right? And what this persistent damage does is it lets you use the characters you're developing on the early earlier turns of the game to actually contribute to take down like a, a bigger character that's potentially dropped by your opponent. We've uh, we've looked into a lot of this stuff here. The the pips, the thing is, I think the 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 biggest key to a lot of this is just how to win the game, which sort of a lot of things can kind of fall into place after that. And the next big mystery, I think, a lot of people are looking at is what the hell the resource system is going to look like. I think that nothing makes or breaks a game quite like the resource system. You could have a really cool idea, but if the resource system sucks ass, then you're not going to really get a lot of people to play multiple games uh one of the biggest complaints i hear from people in magic both new old and veteran elite is the amount of quote-unquote non-games that exist and i think that being able to take a uh, create a resource system that eliminates those types of quote-unquote non-games is quite clutch and i want to get your reverse engineering process in terms of what the resource system and you know, be it generation, et cetera, what that's going to look like. Sweet. So uh, before diving into exactly how I think it executes, I want to talk about why I think it needs to be executed in a particular way. I- I've kind of like drummed down card games into like this three tenets of design for executing and achieving fun, which is make tense decisions, playing your cards, which is where resources come in, and impacting the game state in a meaningful way every time you do something. So... That's why like Magic and other games have complaints because they have non-games because you can't play your cards. So that's just you know a terrible way to begin if you create circumstances or scenarios that are common where you can't play your cards as a balancing factor. Um, so I think the guys at um, Ravensburger have been around the block. 
like Ryan Miller's been there and back, uh, he's going to realize that people should be able to play their cards. At least, fingers crossed, that's what they realize. And the way that I think the resource system works is that the back of the card, it doesn't have the logo. It's actually got the symbol for the resources of cards. And I think you're just going to be able to put cards face down from the top of your deck, similar to a half zone system, uh, every turn or just increment. I am cautious. I do think if I had to bet that there are going to be dedicated resource cards like energy or land in order to get like certain colors of ink and you can face down as like a colorless ink. But uh, I'm going to stay hopeful and hope they avoid that because there's a lot of pitfalls with that system. Yeah. So just to just to sort of recap that you're talking about a card from the top of your deck, so not the card you've drawn, a random card. Do you like that's the card that's going to be taken off and used as a resource? Will you as a player be able to interact with that card? Does it do you think it just becomes like a resource and basically you're just kind of at some random interval deleting a card from your deck, right? That you could have drawn. Yeah, there is design space to play with like the cards in your resource row. Will they do it? I don't think so. I think it'd be really cool and like has a lot of like um, skill challenges and skill checks if that's the case. The reason why I think it's a random card and not a card you put from your hand is because based on those three tenets, again, if you're choosing a card actively not to play with, it's a feels bad in order to play your other cards Mm -hmm. compared to it's easier to accept, oh, my good card got randomly put in my resource row but that's the name of the game and that's like the balancing factor. It could happen to my opponent, it could happen to me rather than me choosing which card do I not want to play with, which is like a negative choice to impose onto the player. That's fascinating. That also opens up some certain design space to the degree of not just interacting with that resource row, but there might be certain cards that allow you to actually look at the card that you're like, or a card that says your opponent must put their cards face down, like they're when they're generating resources to a degree. So that mystery kind of stays uh, stays there as well. I know that I think that I think Pokemon has certain cards that allow you to peek at your prize cards, uh, which is helpful. And who knows? It, I, I really actually think that this is a very awesome way to do it, where you know you draw up at the start of your turn, let's say, and then you can ge- you can choose to generate a resource by putting the top card of your deck onto your onto the field and whether you want it face up or face down based on i guess ink that is uh that's an interesting way to sort of approach this i'm assuming sasha your default is the card is put face down um from the top of your deck at random and just sort of exists face down i mean both players could probably know what card that is or or maybe it's hidden information doesn't really matter that card will now just function as a resource card that is tapped is that correct? And I don't think though, I doubt that in something like Arcana, you'd be able to interact directly with the resource board because uh, I think in general, stone rating people is um, is not a loved a loved part of card games. Yeah, I don't think stone ratings will exist. Like like I said, stopping people from playing their cards is a feel bad. So <laughs> feels yeah, feels good on this piece. end. So yeah, I was gonna say yeah, you're talking to the guy who like actually is a, an active accountant when it comes to fun and that kind of stuff, but. For those who don't know, Stone Rain is a magic card that destroys uh, destroys a land. So uh, when we're talking about that, we're saying that, you know, I don't think that this is a type of game where you'll have uh, a card that says, you know, when this enters the battlefield, uh, banish one of the cards in your opponent's resource row or something like that. I think that that would be immensely toxic, and I don't think that that's what they're going for here. Yeah, the, they won't allow that much fun, I'll say. No, <laughs> whose side, though? Brendan, you're psychotic. Like, the, the nasty, like, if they ever do print a card like that, I think that's basically Brendan is just going to start digging into yeah, that. Yeah, this in my deck. So, I, sh- I want to transition to Floodborne, Storyborne, and Villainborn. What do you think these mean, and... um. You- I think we've talked about it as well as Floodborne is particularly interesting, right? What exists on Aurora because it does have the black, sort of the black coloring to the type line. Uh, what do you think these function as, and how do you, how would you sort of articulate the disparity on Floodborne specifically from the others? So Floodborne is one of the most interesting and unique puzzles to solve, and the TLDR is like because it has no reminder text, it's actually nothing special in regards to the rules. What I've kind of determined is that Floodborne characters are the only character with that name in that color of ink. Uh, mm-hmm. Because basically how they're depicted, it's what happens when that character reaches like their novel idea based off like, you know, the canon version. Uh, we have like Floodborne Hades, which is what happens if he actually did win and like, you know, defeated Hercules or whatever. And this that's like his end result. Uh, Storyborn is the canon version and Dreamborn is like 
an alternate imagination of that character. Mm, yeah, sorry, I misspoke when I said Villaborn. I did mean uh, Dreamborn. But yeah, just so so we can recoup on that, some examples of Dreamborn, I believe, are like Stitch Rockstar, right? Like some of these ones that aren't the canon version, what you see with uh, Robin Hood, you see Storyborn. Or is, or is Stitch Rockstar actually Floodborn? I can't remember. It's Floodborne. Floodborne, because all shift cards, I believe, have Floodborne. But yeah, the the Storyborne specifically, like we see with Robin Hood, that's like that's like the Robin Hood you would expect. Um, so sort mm-hmm. of makes sense there. Oh, so I wonder if there's going to be some sort of situation where, based on if you stay true to the canon, if you stay true to the the actual lore, the the books or the vi- the movies or whatever, that there might be some sort of it's almost like tribal. But uh, I'm I'm very interested in that because, like you mentioned, uh, and and I know that you you talked about this in previous episodes where it's like Stitch is not a rock star, Hades is not the king of Olympus, etc. So these are kind of outside of the realms of the actual outcomes of the movie, like the actual stories. Uh, these are deviations from them. It's like the you know the multiverse you've split off into different timelines and such. And uh, is do you think that there's going to be any other implications beyond? just the fact that this is an alternate reality version or an alternate outcome version? Or do you think that there's going to have implications in terms of what those keywords are going to, are going to mean? Are they going to synergize, et cetera? I think absolutely. Like um, if there's a label, it's going to have some design touching at some point, like, you know, tribal um, things matters, they cost less, whatever. Uh, the main implication is because of the confirmation of two inks maximum. Um, you will never be able to have Storyborn, Dreamborn, and Floodborn in the same character in the same deck because Dreamborns, I suspect, are from different colors compared to the Storyborn character. So if you see, um, mm. you know, Dreamborn, Aladdin, or whatever, you know if they're going to be playing the Floodborn, Aladdin, that the Storyborn, Aladdin's not in their deck. Yeah, because it's a different color. Do you think that this... Um... Dreamboard, Floodborne, Storyborn will be related to deck building constraints at all, and then past that, what sort of deck building constraints do you think there will be um, in Lorcana outside of what we just talked about the two color, the two the two color constraint? Uh, I don't think there'll be constraints on the labels of the cards. I think the only constraints would be the colors and the number of copies per card. Mm-hmm. The numbers per copy, we don't have any information. I'll just be like spitballing there. Yeah, I'm really interested in regards to 60 card decks in a game like this because it does. Because if you look at 60 card decks and something like Magic, I, I don't know. I just I we looked at the sort of we saw the value of how much it takes to draw a card in Lakana. It's quite costly, right? So it does seem like you will not be turboing through too much of your deck and 60 card deck without card draw engines does seem quite high variance do you think um do you think there's potentially like a draw two per turn or do you think it's uh, almost 100 percent just draw one i think you're going to use the same deck but play best two out of three so mm-hmm. you play the first game with whatever and once that game resolves everything's in the graveyard and then next or it gets banished or whatever and then the next game you just keep playing off the top and that's one way to justify the sixty cards. Interesting. That's pretty. Yeah, that's, that's really yeah. fascinating. See that that's that's a brand new perspective to me because I could totally digest the two two out of three thing, especially like you mentioned in a sixty card deck. Even if you're only drawing one per turn, um, I think that this game might be designed in the same way that kind of Hearthstone takes RNG as a catch up mechanic to a degree, where it's just like you play something that has such crazy variance, but it can either high roll or save you or doom you or whatever. I think that this is kind of maybe a situation where, okay, we have a fat, a fat stack um, and we, we the games might be short. So you might only see, you know, 30 to 35% of your deck and that's fine. That variance is what's kind of balancing it. I did not, at all think about the whole situation of all right these cards are done we're going to continue and do the second round with the same um the same deck or whatever the remainder is because i know magic has cards that do stuff like that that are like banned for Hmm. for the just you know in in that regard i don't know what they're called i'm not exactly a magic aficionado but that is a really really interesting take shaharazad i believe is one of those cards so yeah somebody that's like put all the card put the (laughs) game aside and start a new game and then the winner of that game gets like to draw two cards. It's like, what? Like, like no thanks. Yeah, it's funny because it's actually on flavor <laughs> from like a story where, I don't know, this, this princess or something. She like puts off her in the story. Yeah, she puts off her her imminent death by telling like stories over and over again or something. It's like, tell me a story. And the story leads to a story or something like that. It's flavor. Yeah, Antiquities. I believe this comes from Antiquities. Antiquities is quite the set. Um Arabian yes. Nights. Arabian Nights. So this uh this is it's very on brand though. So if we talk about 
we've seen some details. It looks like Lorcana is trying to simplify um, some of the frameworks that exist in other card games. And this would make sense, right? Because in Magic, you would have sort of the post board and then you restart. But in Lorcana, um, we would cut out that sort of sideboarding opportunity and that which adds a lot of complication to a game like Magic and just keep playing off the same deck. So I guess it does make sense in sort of a simplification um, point of view. So talk to us. Uh, yeah, that's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, it's my bad. Yeah, and that's pretty much like the central thesis where I'm coming from. If they can simplify it in a way where it removes decisions that are kind of like tedious for the player, I think that's where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. So talk to us, uh, Sasha, a little bit about um, you know one of your your right there is that everyone can see is the complete quests to win this alternative win condition to a degree. We have basically isolated, uh, like you mentioned, lore or pips as they were once called as a way to achieve winning the game. But are you suggesting that these are going to be fairly common, like as an alternative win condition? Um, Initially, I thought quests were going to be like cards in their own right, and you send certain characters that complete quests. Some characters might suit other quests more than others. But there was like a quote released, which was you complete quests to gain lore, rather than what I thought was you use lore to complete quests. And quests were like, you know, the way to win. So now I think quest cards don't exist. And questing is just like an abstract zone or like concept where like, say you exhaust the character, put it into the quest zone. And then at the start of your turn, if your character is still there, then you get the lore that it has. And then if you have some amount of lore, I think 10 or above, then you just win that game. Interesting. So do you think our quests, do they exist in the deck and you draw them? No, I don't think they're cards at all. I think they're just like a concept. Concept, okay. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. Sasha, tell me how combat works. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got a little bit of a, a hint, which was, or massive hint, really, which was that pocket watch, which kind of eliminated that characters have haste. Because yes. for the longest time, I thought characters had haste, mainly because of Stitch. Uh, and, like, why would you want to, like, you know not exert a character and stuff like that to use it for certain effects or abilities or to actually challenge. Um, So it's pretty safe to say that characters don't have haste. Um, (laughs) Yeah, definitely not now. I'm very surprised. Because, like, the state... It doesn't make any sense on Stitch because basically the... Okay, it does, but now we have to extrapolate what that means, right? Because on Stitch, we thought definitely they have summoning sickness because... Or definitely they come in with haste because if they have summoning sickness, this uh, summoning sickness when they come in, you can't play them until, like, the following turn or something like that. It means... That the stitch, this idea of like tapping them for this this beneficial ability was just a complete free roll. So from there, we assumed that everything came with haste. But Pocket Watch makes it very clear with this concept of rush that that is not the case. Um, definitely threw me for a loop. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Sasha, you were saying. Yeah, yeah, massive loop. But uh, that's good because it means we get to like you know reevaluate our steps and just like look at all the cards again. Uh, so the way that I think combat works now is that uh, you play a character. Uh, if it doesn't have rush, which is their word for haste, uh, you can activate it for its ability and maybe even send it on a quest. But if it does have rush, you can exhaust it to challenge another character which is exhausted. So you can sit there and just like never exhaust your character and they stay nice and safe while like you know things are going around. But they're not doing anything. They're not completing quests. To, compl- to go on a quest, you would have to exhaust that character. Like you commit it to get more, but you're not actually engaging in combat. So it's kind of like a risk-reward. Do I go for the risky law? Hopefully they're not going to target my guys down, or do I just like get the damage in guaranteed type thing? Mm-hmm. So because so, what do you think that this sort of tapping and untapping ability has to do with like challenging other characters? So if something, if something comes in and I tap it with Stitch's ability because it didn't have haste. Now that that character is tapped, is it like unable to block? Do you think the characters can block? Like, what what sort of opportunity cost am I losing by actually tapping that to Stitch's beneficial uh, beneficial ability there? The opportunity cost, I think, is that that character that would have came into play, you can't send it on a quest, and you can't activate its ability, and you leave it vulnerable to actually getting a um, challenge by the opponent. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is any blocking. I think the game works on a premise of I do a thing, it happens, I don't have to ask you any questions, and now it's your turn to do a thing. So like removing that whole uh, play, does this resolve, question mark, like, and then there's that weird tension, but nothing's actually happening. So I think it's all going to be like, go, 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 and that's going to be the fun aspect of the game. Mm-hmm. 
And you have this one popped up. You said dime, uh, damage is simultaneous. How did you, uh, how did you dedu deduce this, and what do you think it means for the game? Just trying to find that one. But uh, I effectively deduced that damage is simultaneous because there is no blockers or defenders. And mm -hmm. the notion and like the cost reward of actually, you know, exhausting your characters. That one was quite a while ago, I think. Yeah, it's uh, number 11 yeah. with Captain Although, no, it's definitely simultaneous, sorry, because Captain Hook has the challenger keyword, mm -hmm. and you would have to evaluate the power when he's not actually challenging, because he only has the plus two when he's challenging. So why would you check his power when he's getting attacked? It's only just so that he can deal damage back. So And that's the reason. Yeah. All right. Next up. This one is particularly interesting to me, to be honest, and that's that you think that combat happens one at a time rather than, I guess, simultaneous across like multiple characters. So resolving, you'd be like resolving multiple combats at the same time. You think it's one by one? Is that correct? Yeah, no banding or like challenging as a group or anything. Just mm. very simple. This thing is doing that thing. Okay, now it's your turn to do a thing, and now it's my turn to do a thing, and it's just a nice ebb and flow without, you know. I have to sum all these points and then I have to look at my points and what sum matters and like just honestly annoying maths. I, I like this kind of situation where let's say you have um, like three three units on one side, three on the other side, and they all are kind of interacting or attacking one another or challenging one another. This is a, um, a gameplay mechanic that was actually used quite efficiently and effectively in Lord of the Rings TCG where... Uh, the order in which things happened was actually quite significant because the outcome of one particular head-to-head, -head, how that one shaped up, if one character defeated another, it was able to sort of inspire or improve or damage other characters that were on the board, and then that would then snowball into how things went. Um, I And in that case, priority uh, was essentially given to, I believe, the attacker. As it was, they got to choose who... What, what resolved in what order, or it was the defender ultimately, decided what, uh, how, how it, uh, it went out. So the, the advantage, I guess, was always to the defender, but then there were combat tricks back and forth in terms of how that resolved. Uh, I like that. I think that that's actually kind of cool because it, it, in Magic, you assign your blockers, everything, you click OK, resolve, and everything just kind of knocks heads at the same time, and then there's an outcome. Uh, so you have to see far into the future of how this can all sort of boil down. In this, if it's one at a time, if one thing doesn't go your way, you still have an opportunity, I guess, to reevaluate and, and reassess how step two or phase two of any particular battle or combat phase might boil down. If there is any, if there even is a combat phase, we'll get to that, I guess, at the end of the episode. But mm -hmm. um, how, how did you come to the conclusion that it's a one at a time combat? Uh, no real hints, more of uh, just understanding what the design philosophy is looking like not having big grand calculations and just having things kind of be more micro. All right, Sasha, I want to get your thoughts specifically on this concept of shared turns. We've seen simultaneous turns sort of be, um, I don't know, a concept in many modern card games executed most notably by digital card games and most recently, I think, by Marvel Snap. Um, this idea that you know we can play a game where it's not my turn, you sit there, do nothing, then we go to your turn, I sit there, do nothing. We can play on the same turn so we're both engaged throughout the entire game. What makes you think that Lorcana is going to implement the system and how exactly do you think it will work? Yeah, the reason why I think Lorcana is going to implement it is because it's just fundamentally better and they have accessibility to do it. Like they could execute it like Hearthstone, which is like I do all my stuff in your turn and now it's your turn to do all your stuff. And like in between that, I'm doing nothing, you're doing nothing. Hearthstone can get away with it because while I'm doing nothing, I can go to the toilet or do whatever else you want to do. But in person, like you can't really just leave the table and come back. Uh, yeah, so that's why I think they're going to increase the cadence, and re which reduces like the length of that dead air, and the dead air is what effectively kills the engagement. And that's why I think they're going to have uh, you know micro transactions, but without having the impact of like the stack in Magic or anything like that. So like I do a thing, it happens. Now you can do a thing that happens. Exactly why I think we'll do that. Microtransactions is a very funny word for that. <laughs> I think in the modern day, it usually means something else. You are uh, you are under the assumption that I'm not already playing the game on the toilet, which is yeah. uh, that's definitely what they Hearthstone, uh, Marvel Snap, uh, Teppin, I think was one of the <laughs> one of those games that actually did this 
uh, at like super fast pace. There was no turns in Teppin, uh, but it was everybody played at the same time. That was actually a really fun yeah. game. Kind of, I kind of miss playing that game. But um, that, yeah, no shared tur- or shared turns rather. I think can be difficult. I mean, how does how do you resolve that when you are you know like is it everybody plays something face down and then reveals it at, at and, and simultaneously? How does that work? Well, when I mean shared turns, is that we can both play cards on each other's turns, or like the shared turn. It's just that turn will belong to someone, and the person who the turn belongs to gets to like untap and draw a card, for example. Mm-hmm. And by meanings of share, it's like Legends of Runeterra is a great example. The turns don't really have an owner. You just have like the, the combat token, and that kind of signifies like the only role difference in that type of game. So it's going to be like Legends of Runeterra, but instead of owning the combat token, you just get to untap and draw. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. So you think that the sort of refresh or untap is at the end of the turn um, rather than the beginning of the turn, which is like something Magic the Gathering uses. Why do you think that and what effect uh, does it... Like what benefit does it have being at the end of the turn rather than at the beginning of the turn? Well, that's what I used to think, and then the pocket watch changed everything. Um, since uh, the pocket watch, uh, you kind of recalibrate, and then I think you're just going to refresh or untap at the start of your turn. So nothing too crazy there. No end-of-turn ceremony. The end-of-turn ceremony is like, I pass, you pass. Okay, we both pass. That means the turn's ended, and then you know the next person gets to do this stuff. I swear, the freaking pocket watch has been just like the the annihilator of all of our theories. Like this card <laughs> came out and it was just like, what the hell? I just did not. This is the honestly, the pocket watch is so far has been the the most surprising card outside of Olaf, which is still very very confusing to me. I was gonna say you're you're so high on Olaf. This like such this such arbitrary like do nothing vanilla creature that's out there that is just sort of kind of you know created this mystery the shroud around it of what what does it mean what does it do um and pocket watch now is kind of i guess taking that <laughs> territory away mm-hmm. all off still uh, taking the cake all the amethyst cards all the amethyst cards yeah death they're all pretty cool uh not gonna lie um shift and evolve is the now your when you were tweeting out all this reverse engineering, your thoughts and your processes in terms of thought, thinking about what the game might look like, this is the one that I think that when I saw Hades and the shift mechanic, this to me was my first thought process as well, that it was like an evolution situation, that it was you have phases of a particular character, you cannot get to its biggest phase unless you go through the process of kind of building it up, evolving it, like there, right there. You see Charmander through uh, all the way up to Charizard, um what what is your take on shift uh and and you know how are you relating it in this particular case to pokemon's evolution um mechanic so this one is both like design and business perspective um i think they're very much going to like emote and try to get the same reactions to like the pokemon audience uh both like the people who play it and the collective value and all that type of stuff because it is uh, a more universally friendly IP uh, to all age groups. Uh, the evolve thing is, is exactly the feeling to evoke of like, I make, I have a character and now I'm making it bigger and better. And shift kind of solves the problem of like, if I just draw my Charizard and I don't have anything else, then it's just a dead card in my hand. And like I said, not playing your cards is a, is a feel bad. So there is an option to play your shift for like, it's above cost that you expected or wanted to. Uh, but yeah. That whole feeling of let's try to get things that are familiar to people with like this effective competitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Like that was also my somewhat first thought when it came to shifts, and I think that it it seems intuitive for the information uh, that we have so far. Next thing I want to talk about is, I mean, we talked about the amethyst cards. Here's another. So we got magic mirror. Uh, what do you deduce from cards like this that are cost like this? They're obviously very similar to cards that exist in other games, um, but. They give us a lot of information about the value of a card, right? Because it's Magic Mirror, two to play, and then four and tap to draw a card. Like, can you just talk to me a little bit about items in Lorcana? Yeah, so items in Lorcana are pretty dangerous in general, just like they are in Magic, because you can't natively interact with them in combat or challenging or anything like that. So you're going to have to have cards that are specific to deal with them, and not every color of ink would have ways to interact with them. I think it's going to be a conscious choice. Um, if every color of ink does have a way to interact with them, then the means of that interaction have to change. Otherwise, they're just boring reprints of the same card in every color. 
Um, yeah, so items are really powerful because that they can't be interacted with in normal means. So they have very powerful effects, and those effects kind of like sway the game, especially Jame Daytone Magic Mirror, which is just saying, I'm going to have more cards than you for the rest of the game, which means I have more options and more buff, uh, but at the cost of four resources. How impactful is four resources in, is in Locana, uh, TBD? Hmm. Like, maybe you don't want to um, have the game last too long if the game is like two out of three with a 60-card deck because then you have less cards to win the second game and mm. you might actually be able to have enough cards to play the third game entirely if that's the way they go. Yeah, the thing about Magic Mirror, which is the most important, is like you can't evaluate Magic Mirror on the cost of playing it on two and then when you get the four resources drawing cards, that's not really going to be the use case. The use case is in like a more controlling deck in the later turns once you've, once you've sort of... Um, Taken, taken over the board, right? And uh, you're sort of the the player that's dictating um, the board space. Now you can use Magic Mirror to consistently uh, draw cards as an engine um, to win you that game through just like card advantage. Yep, powerful card. All right, last thing for us is um, you think there's going to be no dice rolling in Larkana? Why is that? Thank God. Thank God. I, I, I <laughs> look. I, I just want to sort of move in on this before we dig into the actual. Why you think so? Thank, thank you for not having dice rolls in this game because dice are wicked, and every every deck that I play, I, I it, games where RNG is a major factor. Like I don't take Hearthstone seriously because of the RNG, but in other games like Flesh and Blood, I can't play Brute because there's dice, and that's that's just to the sheer factor of it. So please convince me and make me feel good, Sasha, about there being no dice rolls. Uh, the macro like reason why not design reason but uh ravensburg is a game um board game publisher all the products listed it's like the gift boxes and everything they don't have dice mm. in them they don't have coins they've got like the tracker for the law for quests i guess uh that's it like i think that's enough <laughs> if you need to go into a design aspect uh how many magic cards uh have dice in them uh or flip a coin in them flip a coin is pretty niche but uh Dice, I don't see so, especially when you have persistent counters on cards and stuff anyway. Magic takes Maybe they'll do like a roll of dice effect for an item, like as a one-off, but uh, not as a massive overarching theme or something reusable. Yeah, magic is, magic is like, it, it's funny because we use magic as like our our pillar to compare everything to, but magic in terms of design has done some wacky things. This is definitely a tangent, but like, I just, I recently was exposed to like initiative and like entering the dungeon. And that is the clunkiest like system I have ever seen in my life. It is freaking ridiculous. Um, Sasha, to cap it out here, do you want to just run us through uh, this write-up you did for us, the turn order and how the phases work? And do you think? For sure. Like, um, so is my spiel or take or kind of my snapshot of what I think a game or turn order of Lokana will be. So I think um, you randomly determine who starts. Dice roll, right there, start. dice roll. You are, you're already wrong. You're already wrong. You're already <laughs> wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, the person who goes second uh, gets a free resource or some handicap mechanic. Uh, you draw five cards. Five is like asterisk based off whether there are energy lands in the game, which hopefully there are not. Um, yep, you get one free mulligan uh, for all your cards, not partial mulligan. Just a binary decision. Don't make people make the micro choice. Even though I think it's better for gameplay, I think coming from a macro standpoint of make things as simple and clean as possible. And, and then from that, uh, you have the starting player. Uh, they draw a card. They put the top card of the deck in the resource row. They can then choose to play a card, and then if they don't, then the opponent gets to choose to play a card, and if they don't, um, you both pass consecutively, and then the turn ends. But when you play a card, you can uh, you know play a card, uh, use a character to challenge and exhaust the character, activate a character's ability, uh, send them on a quest, or you know pass. And at the start of your turn, uh, you refresh. Characters that are on a quest and refresh, you score um, law equal to their law value. And then if you have 10 or more, you win. And I think that's the effective game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's uh, simple enough, I think, uh, ultimately. The the one thing that I'm trying to digest here is when you're mentioning, you know, you're putting the... the I think, that, again, the, the resource situation is is the next biggest linchpin to how a lot of this stuff kind of falls out. But if you're if you're saying that you know, let's say you have Maleficent, uh, Maleficent that costs eight, I believe it is. Um, 
you're putting um you know you could you have the option of putting a card down into your resource row you have eight do you have eight do you feel like do you think it's going to be something where you have eight perpetually for that turn where you can play as many cards as you want that have a cost of eight or less or is it a, a situation of tapping or exerting those resource cards in your resource row where there's a limited amount much like lands and magic uh i think you exert them because it feels like you're paying for something rather than having a threshold i can see either way until we see like a much more breadth of design um we have to know because there's dangerous if it's threshold because turn two by i've like six two drops and i've raised you to law and that's it like that's like a massive danger uh which is why the swirl on the cost is also like very tbd whether you're going to play one swirl card per turn you're going to play swirl cards on your turn um it's it's hard to know or swirl means you need like that color of ink if there are like lands and energy in the game but uh yeah until we get a little bit more it's hard to be kind of confident on that one Awesome. Well, Sasha, we really appreciate you coming on. Um, for the listeners, what are you up to these days and where can people find you? Uh, so these days, uh, when I'm not reverse engineering uh, Lokana, I'm making my own card game. Uh, I uh, used to design for Flesh and Blood, and then I've since left, competed in some events, and now I make my own card game, which is uh, really exciting to see like all these other cool games. It's like a another resurgence of card games it's, mm-hmm. it's really cool to just see a lot of cool ideas like card games are pretty much like cakes at a party you're not going to complain if there's more because you're going to have another slice of a new flavor you never tried it's like fantastic time to be a gamer uh, but otherwise i'm on twitter at market victory i'm sure it's in the description or something but uh yeah if you want to hear about card games please check me out otherwise thanks awesome thanks Dude, it was so it was yeah it was so good to, to have you on board man i know a lot of people actually uh some of the questions that we received in our mailbag were actually about what the turn cycle will go. So uh, your insight there, again, I do recommend people go check you out uh, because you're releasing stuff basically on the daily of new ideas and new reverse engineering. And curious question about this card game that you're developing. When will we know more about that? Uh, Within the quarter, I think, for sure. Beauty. Awesome stuff. Thank you so much, Sasha, man. I, I do appreciate it. We both appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work, dude. No worries. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right, it's mailbag time. Time for some spilled ink. Brendan, Patrick, and myself are going to be digging through some of the questions that you guys sent our way. Again, if you guys have questions about the game, about uh, us, card games in general, we'd love to get your questions. So thank you to all those who sent questions our way. This week, Brendan, the first question for Spilled Ink is from Lorcana Car uh, Lorcana Carpool. It's tough to say. Um, <laughs> at Lorcana Carpool, name, it is kind of cool. Not gonna lie. Uh, asking, does only being able to have two inks per deck make deck building easier or harder? Easier. <laughs> um, I think that it's just like objectively easier, and that's why they did it. To be honest. Um, I don't know if there's a lot of nuance to that, right? Like, if there is any sort of situation where it's harder to deck build with two rather than more. I think if you're, like, what it will do is if you're in two colors or two elements or whatever you want to call them, um, and you're looking for a specific tool, like, let's say, like, it's spot removal, right? So removal that just takes something off the board. You could look at Dragonfire, um, and you're in blue and black or Amethyst and Sapphire. You just won't have access to that, and it does change how you how you have to build your deck because you feel like, okay, I need to be able to answer a turn eight creature but you know amethyst and sapphire don't really have that now you have to find out new ways to sort of how you're going to navigate that scenario if you're playing those colors so yeah i mean again objectively if you're looking at it if you have less options it's easier to put something together because you don't have you have less choices to make but in the same vein it also is harder to make interesting stuff because Mm -hmm. you're kind of painted into a corner of like you mentioned you know if these two colors are good at doing one or two things, but it's our weak in another department. You'll have to sort of soak up that weakness in other ways or just blow past it. Now, um, I, I particularly, what I like about a game like Magic is that you do have access to everything. You could build jank, you could build a five color deck and go do some wacky nonsense. But um, at the same time, I do like the fact that there are weaknesses built into particular colors. And if you're limiting, uh, if you're limiting a deck to any like a, a few particular colors, I like the challenge, and I find it rewarding to build a deck that has to overcome 
that deficit somehow, be mm-hmm. it by doubling down in a certain way, ignoring that altogether, just taking that L when it comes your way. It does make deck building, in my opinion, more challenging when you have to build a well-rounded deck and you're you're handicapped in certain spots. But I mean, I mean, it's it's hard to say if you're just looking at it black and white. You know, the easy way is to look at the data and say if I have less variables, coming to a solution is going to be easier when you're sifting through less, uh, you know, less variables. So um, I'll say it's easier to build a deck, you know, ultimately. But it's I'm going to find it less rewarding frankly what i do like about two colors uh two color limits is it does give the decks uh stronger identities um like if you look at like something like magic like a five color deck that just splashes for good stuff is just it doesn't really have the same identity as like blue white right like blue white kind of usually does like one thing if you know you start adding in a few other colors just to splash like a, a broken a broken card in some other color, you sort of start to lose a bit of the deck's identity for whatever that's worth, because I don't know if it's worth too much. <laughs> yeah, and we all know that, you know, Rakdos is all about sacrificing. You've yeah. got uh, all those kinds of stuff like that. So uh, we'll see how how those identities kind of shape up. We're, we're getting clues as cards are coming out to see what kind of uh, each color is associated with. But uh, there you go. Uh, hopefully that uh, answers your question. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we got another question here from B squared 24 of Lorcana at B squared 24 YouTube. Ideally, what's the max you'd want to spend on the most, or you want the max you'd want the deck to cost in Lorcana at any given time? Um, I think this is a pretty interesting question because it's super relative, uh, but Flake, I'll let you take it away. Well, me personally, uh, $3 is Zero like, the, yeah. yeah, exactly. $0 would be e- exceptional. And, and you know, we are spoiled that way because you can go out there and play a dozen different titles digitally for $0 and have a good time and build it up that way. Uh, are, will you be enticed to spend money? Of course, let's be honest. But um, I think that realistically, a competitive deck, a tier one deck that can win a tournament should probably not exceed $500. Yeah. And a lot of people are going to look at this and say $500 is obscene. A booster box is $140. So you're saying I have to buy five booster boxes worth of cards or four booster boxes worth of cards to get a, a good deck? Frankly, yes, I think that that's fair. And ultimately, uh, it's going to boil down to there are going to be a pocket of cards that are just good, that are just great. And if two two decks bubble to the top or two or three decks bubble to the top as being competitive tier one options, the cards that are the best cards within those color sets are going to be coveted. They're going to be in, in need. And as soon as you create this, you know, gone are the days of common, uncommon, rare. Now you have almost five, even six tiers of, um, of rarity and the higher up the, the ladder you go, if those cards are playable, they are going to be expensive. I would not be surprised if a good Lorcana deck that costs $500, if like $250 of that is basically wrapped up in 10% of the deck. So that's where I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. But if they want to find the sweet spot, tier one decks should not exceed $500. Yeah, I'm there with you. Um, I know in Flesh and Blood specifically, the way that I like to look at it is that the deck cost is part of my buy-in for the tournament. So my buy-in for like a, you know, a 10k, 20k prize pool or 50k, 100k, like you see in some of the higher level uh, events of Flesh and Blood, it's just part of my buy-in, and I think it's pretty reasonable at that when you consider sort of resale value, potential resale value. It's very speculative. Um, it's it ends up being not that bad because the when you're new into card games or you're coming into a new card game the idea of just buying a 500 dollars deck to just be able to play games is ridiculous but the fact of the matter is is that you don't need a 500 dollars deck to play at your local lg your local game store <laughs> you are you debatably don't even need it to play at a major tournament but i think that the only justification is that like at major tournaments yes you might need the 500 dollars deck but if you're going to your local game store and complaining that the top deck is 500 dollars and you want it to be cheaper the fact of the matter is is you don't need the 500 dollars deck to play at your local game store so let me ask you this then because if if it, let's say the first major tournament that Lorcana has uh you know they have a huge $100,000 tournament it's like the big first big thing what happens if the first deck the first the finals is deck A costs $750. You know, you want to go buy it 
based on singles, $750 is the price tag. And what if that tech gets beaten by a deck that is costs $40? Like, what does that say for the game? What does that say for for maybe not collectability, but is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I mean, it depends. I think usually the $40 deck would get more expensive in that case, but it also could be like if we want to draw parallels to another game, like Mono Red wins tournaments in Magic all the time, and your blue-white control deck might be hundreds of dollars. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's strictly better, but like, you know, there are usually aggro decks <clears throat> can be more of a budget option for players because they utilize more like a higher density of lower rarity cards. And that's pretty standard in a lot of card games. Like even Flesh and Blood, um, which is not really the case because the higher rarity cards don't necessarily tend to be strictly better than the lower rarity cards. Even in Flesh and Blood, usually the aggro decks are a lot cheaper. Yeah, more or less. I mean, just Redline Fi. Like, mm. and there's and again, the cards that are expensive in those cases are usually the highest rarity, like the legendary rarity cards, or the the mid mid to high tier majestic rarity that are just staples across all decks so it's not just that there's one particular class that wants them it's that everybody wants them and i think that 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 goes back to the fact that i think you know when a deck costs 500 dollars, a lot of that i'd say about you know 80 80 of the cost is going to be wrapped up in 10 percent of the deck yep all right uh the last question was from popo mike but it was about uh, how to walk through a turn cycle uh and that was for uh, that was for Sasha. So uh, if you missed it, Popo Mike, you can rewind and go check out because uh, Sasha basically walks us through what he believes the turn cycle will be. And uh, out of curiosity, uh, do you agree with what he was saying? Do you have any your own ideas? No, I agree as much as I can agree. Um, I think it's just it's it's still a stretch to draw out the entire turn cycle at this point. Um, so I'd rather ride the coattails of Sasha's ideas than try to figure it out myself. Fair enough. I'm good with that because I am bad at prognosticating stuff like this, so I'm not even going to try. But uh, that does it for the uh, Spildink mailbag this week. If you've got a question for Brendan or myself, you can tweet at us at BrendanAPG or at WatchFlake on Twitter or at PodCanna. Uh, we, we definitely like to hear your thoughts, your musings, and again, your curiosities as we try to answer them every week on uh, Spildink. So uh, thank you to those people who sent them in. Yep. Well, thanks everybody for listening. That concludes episode four, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. 